Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 89. We are concluding this uh, mini-series on the Psalms that we have been doing, and Psalm 89 ends Book 3 of the Psalter, so we'll take it up this evening. Psalm 89, Amaskal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? a God greatly feared in the counsel of the Holy Ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm, your hand is mighty, your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, 
I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever in his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Selah. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turn back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the hand of Sheol? Selah. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray once more. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for this psalm. And we ask for understanding as we approach it. Please grant us to see our glorious Savior in it, and also to understand how it applies to us today, living in the year 2024. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You will sometimes hear a phrase used, I've used it myself, that we live in a post-Christian society. But if we think about that phrase, isn't it kind of an odd thing to think about that a Christian society ceases to be Christian? That the gospel goes to a place that it has great success to the point that you can say that widely, at a, even at a national level, that a society is Christian, and then it moves away from that? What are we to make of that? Has God... Turn back his purposes to advance the gospel? Or what about when we think of a church that's been around for decades and they've been a faithful church, they have preached the gospel, but for various reasons the numbers dwindle, a family moves away because the father lost a job and the new job takes them to another state. They lose uh, other key families as children grow up and move off to college and as others go to be with the Lord. Perhaps other families have a falling out because they can't figure out how to get along. And so the church, over time, dwindles. Eventually, they close their doors for one last time. 
time. Or what do we make of a church plant that we might pour effort into and all kinds of resources into and prayers uh, on, on the behalf of this church plant, and it never gets past the seedling stage. That after years and years of, of labor, desiring to see it take off, it doesn't. Has the Lord turned back his purposes? Has he changed from his desire and intention for the gospel to have success and for Christ to be glorified in the gospel? Or how about when we see young people who have grown up into the church and who have even professed faith, and we find that there's a breach in the walls of the church, and that passers-by come in, and they grab the children, and they take them off into the captivity of unbelief. Has God ceased to be faithful when things like that happen? In our psalm, we'll find an answer to that question. If the answer is no, he has not changed from his faithfulness. That God remains committed to the cause of David's son, even when nations slip back beneath the waters of secularism. God remains committed to the cause of David's son, even when churches shutter their doors, and when church plants never particularize. And God remains committed to the cause of David's son, even when we see children from the congregation leaving. In other words, God remains committed to the cause of David's son, even when it doesn't look like it. And so as we consider this idea of God's faithfulness, even when we, we don't see it before our eyes will uh, we'll develop it as we, we go through this psalm. And uh, to, to follow along, I'll, I'll outline the psalm for you. We can take verses 1 through 4 as something of a table of contents or a topic sentence for the next two sections that you get in, in a very condensed, miniature way in the first four verses, something that the psalm is going to develop over uh, verses 5 through 37. In verses 5 through 18, we have a hymn. This hymn is praising the Lord for his faithfulness. The Lord's faithfulness is the keynote of this hymn. And then in verses 19 through 37, we have a vision where the Lord promises faithfulness. And then in verse 38 through 51, we have a lament where the psalmist pleads for the Lord's faithfulness when it seems that he has turned away from his covenant purposes. And so if you want just the, a few key words to, uh, to help you follow along this evening, you have the hymn in verses 5 through 18, the vision in 19 through 37, and the lament in 38 through 51. Or you could, you could also uh, describe the content of what these are, praising the Lord's faithfulness, uh, uh, the promise of the Lord's faithfulness, and then pleading for the Lord's faithfulness. 
So let us first consider the hymn which praises God's faithfulness. <clears throat> this hymn, as I said, is uh, you find a condensed version in the first two verses. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. And now this, this begins to be unpacked over verses 5 through 18. And the psalmist begins in the heavenly places. And he's praising God's faithfulness in the heavens. And we're brought into uh, the, the heavenly presence of God. And we find that he is being praised by the heavens and by the heavenly creatures for his faithfulness. That his holy ones sing his praises. And there's the question of who is like the Lord? Who is comparable to the Lord? Verse 6. This hymn of praising God's faithfulness uh, has as its as I mentioned, it's, it's keynote, uh, these, this return uh, to expressions of faithfulness. So you have in verse 5 that uh, God's faithfulness is declared in the assembly of the holy ones. In verse 8, your faithfulness surrounds you. And then in verses 9 and 10, we move from the heavens, the waters above, to the seas, the waters below. And here we see God exercising his dominion over the waters as he quiets their raging and their swelling. And as he crushes Rahab, this is not Rahab of Jericho, but Rahab, which refers to Egypt and also to a sea monster elsewhere in Scripture. And is connected with, with the Exodus in which God destroys Egypt uh, through a watery judgment. And then further progressing on through the psalm, we have a movement to the land in verses 11 and following. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them, the north and the south. You have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. Following this movement from heaven to waters below to the earth, there then is the appearance of a people. In verses 15 and following, How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord. They walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. So I, I point out the, the settings of the various places in the hymn as we go along, because I, what I believe this uh, hymn is doing, this, this action of praise is, reflecting on the faithfulness of God as it's manifested in his creation and in his redemption. You have God demonstrating his faithfulness as the one who has made the world and upholds it by his power, and also as the one who delivers his people. And these are, are two related concepts, creation and new creation. That in both creation and in the Exodus, you have God separating waters from each other so that dry land appears. And then after there's the appearance of dry land, you have the Exodus of the people, and you have uh, God's creation in Genesis of man, and the creation of a nation in Exodus. And the purpose in both instances is for God to dwell among this people that he has 
uh, either created or recreated through redemption. So the psalmist is looking back and reflecting on God's righteousness in creation and new creation. And so then as we move into the second uh, major section of the psalm, the vision of God's faithfulness, where he promises faithfulness to David, we find that this is not just a a total uh, abrupt transition to something that has nothing to do with creation or the Exodus redemption, but rather we should read this transition to the, the Davidic covenant in continuity with God's creation and exodus purposes. That this is a further development of what God has already begun to undertake in the creation and in the exodus as he has shown himself faithful in establishing creation, upholding creation, as he has shown himself faithful in destroying and crushing Rahab, he is now continuing to show himself faithful as he advances his purposes through the Davidic covenant. This section uh, links up with the previous hymn, this section of the vision links up with the previous hymn, and then it connects David's throne with the heavens where Christ's, uh, where God the Father's faithfulness has been proclaimed. You see that uh, David is promised a throne which has the durability of the heavenly bodies. Verses 29 36 and 37, verse 29. God promises, I will establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. So the faithfulness of God manifested in the heavens through creation now has joined to it a Davidic throne which will be as durable as the heavens. Verse 36, his descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. So we have the, the linking up of the Davidic throne to the heavenly bodies. That this is a continuation of God's creation purposes. Furthermore, with the hymn still ringing in our ears of creation and the Exodus redemption, we should see the Davidic covenant as in continuity with and an intensification of something that God has already purposed to undertake and which he is faithful to accomplish. In the Davidic covenant in our psalm, there's, there's two features that, that go together, uh, two aspects of one feature, that is a manifestation of God's faithfulness. An uh, offspring, a dynasty, a line of kings that will never end, and also the rulership aspect of that, that not only are there going to be descendants in perpetuity, but that there is going to be rule that is given to them, that they're going to reign and rule. But as we read about these promises that God is making to David, that he will give him a dynasty, that he will give him a seed, that he will give him a throne that is established in the heavens, this isn't coming out of nowhere. This is rooted in God's purposes for creation. That the promise of seed and offspring 
is creational. When God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And so is the purpose of God that mankind should reign on the earth, giving them the commission to take dominion over the earth and to reign on the earth. And we know that because of their sin, Adam and Eve went off that path. But God in his faithfulness has brought humanity back. He is not going to give over his creation purposes for mankind, that he is going to fill the earth with people, and they are going to reign on the earth. And so even after Adam transgresses, put back on the path, and he furthers his purposes through Abraham. And again, in the Abrahamic covenant, you have the same purposes unfold. I will give you an offspring. And they will inherit the land. They will possess the land. They will be rulers in the land. We see that develop further through Judah, the royal tribe. We see this advance with Israel, multiplying in Egypt at the opening of Exodus. And they are brought out of Egypt so that they can be a kingdom of priests serving their God. And now, as we come to this stage in history with David, God is continuing to advance his creation purposes Even though Adam has failed, Abraham has failed in his ways, Israel has failed, every time that God puts the people back on track for his his purposes for creation, they go off and he is faithful to put them back on track and advance his purposes. And now he's come to the Davidic covenant and he has reaffirmed his commitment that there's going to be a dynasty, a seed that is royal and that will be God's son. One figure in particular, David's son, who will be God's son and who will call God his father and whom God will call his firstborn. Furthermore, we should see in this, uh, this vision a connection with the, the hymn that precedes it in that this, uh, in this vision we get fleshed out that that creation purpose of God, that redemption purpose of God, in uh, what we may call the Adam Project or the Abraham Project or the David Project. And what we see being developed at the, the Davidic stage, but also going all the way back to Adam, is that this singular figure, and then also more broadly those who are connected with him, are to show forth the image of God. That the hymn describes God in certain ways, and then subsequently, the the vision describes the human Davidic king in the same manner, or in a similar manner. So, for example, the Lord is described in the hymn as having a throne. In verse 14, Uh, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And yet, the Davidic king also will sit upon his throne. Verse 29, so I will establish his descendants forever in his throne as the days of heaven. Furthermore, we see the Lord reigning uh, reigning in the heavenly places, and we see David's throne connected with the heavenly places. And we see, uh, furthermore, that the Lord exercises a dominion over the seas, verses 9 and 10. 
that he, he rules the swelling of the sea when its waves rise, he stills them. And now the Davidic human king is called to image, to replicate in a creaturely way that divine rule. And so his hand also is on the sea, and his right hand is on the waters. This has a, a geographic significance that he's going to have uh, the sea to the west and the, the river, uh, the rivers to the east, the Euphrates. It's going to be a wide dominion. But notice that his dominion is characterized in terms of his uh, ruling over the waters, just as the Lord has also been described as ruling over the waters. The Lord has a strong arm and a mighty hand. And this hand will come alongside David and establish him. So the, we see the, the Lord's hand in verse 13. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. In verse 21, we see that the Lord's hand is with David, with whom my hand will be established. My arm will strengthen him. And then verse 25, we see that the Davidic hand mirrors or reflects the hand of God in his uh, exercise of authority and rule. So this is what is at stake in the Davidic covenant, that God has promised to advance his purposes through David. And this isn't just something that we should think about, well, that's an Old Testament thing that's unrelated to me, but we should read this in, in, in the creation arc of God's purposes for humanity, that God intends to set a people apart who will reign as a kingdom of priests on the earth throughout eternity. And that if the Davidic covenant is jeopardized, God's purposes for creation are jeopardized. And that it is through the church that God is now at present continuing those purposes. And so where the cause of the church is turned back, God's intentions for humanity are turned back that the fate of creation, or, or to perhaps use a, a better term, the, the, the destiny that God has intended for creation is bound up with the church as she is united to her Lord Jesus. And God has promised to be faithful to that purpose, faithful to the Davidic covenant, faithful to his creational intention for the human race. Yet, as we move into the final portion of the psalm, we find that we are jarred. But the Lord who promised unwavering faithfulness seems to have changed. He seems to have rejected the covenant that he said he would not reject. Beginning in verse 38, we have the lament. You have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. In this section, the psalmist pleads with the Lord on the basis of the previous two sections to close the gap between what he has promised and what the people are experiencing. 
that, the God, that God has promised that he will make this covenant, that he will be faithful to it, that yes, there will be chastisement if the, the sons of David are wicked and they turn from it, and yet he will not uh, reject it permanently or forever, and yet the situation appears to be that's what's happening. And so he pleads with the Lord on the basis of the previous promises to change the circumstances, change the situation, so that he again shows himself in a way that appears consistent with what he has promised. <clears throat> and so to return to the, <clears throat> the theme of the hand that we've seen, the Lord's hand, David's hand, <clears throat> we find that in the lament section, verse 42, there's a twist. Now it's the right hand of David's adversaries that the Lord has lifted up. And in verse 48, it's the hand of Sheol that threatens uh, all mankind. Whereas formerly David's throne was promised to be as enduring as the heaven, we read in verse 44 that the throne has been hurled to the ground. Whereas the Lord promised in verse 23 that he would crush David's adversaries before him and strike those who hate him, we read in verse 42 that God has exalted the right hand of his adversaries and made all his enemies rejoice. In verse 22, God promised that the enemy would not outwit David. And yet again in verse 42 and 51, we find the enemies rejoicing and reproaching the Lord's servant. In verse 27, the Lord promised a commitment to make the messianic king the highest of the kings of the earth. And yet in verse 50 and 51, we find that he is being reproached. His crown cast down to the ground, his throne cast down to the ground. So what are we to make of a God who promises faithfulness? But when we look around us, it appears that he has changed. As we think about the cause of the church, the cause of the gospel, and the society around us, as we think about churches or church plants that might close their doors, we need to approach those questions. Where is God in all of this? Where is God's faithfulness? Where is his commitment to the cause of his son Jesus Christ in this? We need to approach those questions first by understanding Psalm 89 as it speaks prophetically of Christ's own sufferings. When we have the New Testament perspective, we see that at the moment when it appears that God has rejected and thrown off his promises to David, when it appears that finally the line of David will be severed and cut off and rejected forever, that it is in that very moment that he is establishing David's throne forever. That it is in that moment that he is building up and preparing to exalt this throne into the heavenly places where it will be fixed forever, and, where, and from which the Son of David, Jesus Christ, will exercise his royal reign over the nations 
of the earth. In the crucifixion, we come to understand that the appearance of rejection by God, or the appearance of the rejection of the Davidic covenant, is not at odds with his faithfulness to that covenant. That it's through Jesus' sacrifice that God exalts him as the king of kings and lord of lords to reign over the nations. There is unmistakable kingship associated with Christ's crucifixion. He has a crown of thorns that is placed on his head. He's given a a purple robe. He's given a, a, a reed as a mock scepter. And over his head is placed uh, the title King of the Jews. In other words, it appears through the mockery of kingship that is being uh, applied to him during his crucifixion, there is the appearance that the Lord has turned back from the covenant, that he has rejected his promises, but really what is happening is that he is fulfilling those promises that this is going to be the nature and the manner through which Christ exercises his kingship over the nations. That the crown being cast down to the ground is not a rejection of the covenant, but rather, as Jesus takes upon his head that, that earthy crown of thorns, the emblem of the curse upon the ground, it is part of his curse-bearing through which he will affect the forgiveness of sins and which will be the means of his drawing the nations in. <clears throat> I shared this with the, the youth group at a, a, a recent Wednesday gathering, and it's the sort of thing I, I prefer to share in that context because it's not from the pulpit. It's a, it's a bit speculative because I don't have a, a, a verse in the New Testament where I can say, this is exactly, uh, or, or this is for sure a, a home run interpretation. So I, I give that, that preface to what I'm about to say. But consider if Jesus' crucifixion is an apparent rejection of the covenant, and yet it's actually the establishing of the promises to David. What do we make of one of the particular kingship promises that is foundational to the Psalms? That Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, certainly, I think we can say that there's retributive justice that is being described there, that Jesus will crush the nations that do not submit when he returns to judge the world in righteousness. But if the display of Christ's kingship in the gospel age is through the emblems of the cross, could it be that the iron rod with which he brings kings to their knees and with which he subdues the nations is the iron nail? That in the gospel age, the rod of iron does not pass through the curled fingers of a clenched fist, but through the wounds of a pierced hand. That in the cross we understand 
how it is that God has not rejected his promises, how he has not been unfaithful, but rather that he is establishing the reign of a kingdom like no other, one which gathers enemies by mercy, because Jesus took upon himself the curse and the wrath of God. And so if we look back to the cross and we see how there at that point that God proved faithful even when by all appearances he had cast off and indeed had, had truly dealt with his son to the point where Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we can be certain as we look at our own context and we have questions about whether or not God is being faithful to the cause of his son and we can say with absolute certainty he is still committed to the cause of his son. Even when we see whole nations slip back into darkness, even when we see struggling churches dissolve, even when we see church plants that aren't taking off, even when we see children who have left the church, we ought not come to the conclusion that God has ceased to desire the advancement of the reign of his son through the gospel. That is not a conclusion that we should come to just because it looks that way. And coming back to a psalm like Psalm 89 teaches us, once again, that God is faithful to his promises and that we can plead his promise of faithfulness back to him when we encounter those situations, when we encounter a nation that is increasingly secular, when we encounter difficulty with church extension, and when we encounter those painful situations where loved ones leave the doors of the church, we can say that no, God is not any less committed to advancing the cause of his son through the gospel. And so we may turn to him and plead with him on that basis to again show himself in a way outwardly that we can see that he is committed to bringing the nations in, that he is committed to his David project, that he is committed to his Adam project, that he is committed to making a kingdom of priests who will reign on the earth and who will reflect the image of God as that status has been secured by them by the one who preeminently shows us that image, Jesus Christ. And so we will pass through praise and we will pass through lament. But the final note will be the final note of our psalm. That it will be once again the statement, bless the Lord forever. That we will come full circle to that posture of praise and confidence in our God. And to this we may all say, amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our God, we do pray to you as we look around at a situation that is oftentimes very dark, in which we don't see in a way that we understand what your purposes are, where it would seem to us like you have turned from your purposes to advance uh, the glorious message of the gospel. And we ask that you would 
again restore, that you would again show upon your people the favor that you have shown of old in restoring us and in restoring the progression and the advancement of the gospel in our day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.